Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. I'm hoping that we can share some thoughts this evening uh, regarding Dante and, and Thomism. And I, in the area of Dante studies, I'm uh, probably just as much a, a beginner as yourselves. Uh, why don't we just begin with uh, a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, we beseech you all our actions by your holy inspirations and carry them on by your gracious assistance that every prayer and work of ours may begin always from you and by you be happily ended. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. St. Dominic, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son. Amen. So my first task is to say that nothing you're going to hear in this talk is going to be original. Okay. Um, I have drawn, I, in uh, starting to prepare for this talk, I had the happy circumstance of getting in touch with Professor George Corbett of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And he has been at work on Dante and Thomism for much longer than I have. And he very helpfully provided a, an unpublished essay, uh, which is going to be published in the journal Nova et Vetera. And it's entitled Thomists at War, Pierre Mendonnet, Etienne Gilson, and the Contested Relationship Between Aquinas's and Dante's Thought. 1879 to 2021. So uh, that very in, this very interesting article has uh, provided much of what I'm going to be talking about here tonight. And at, at first glance, it may seem that this whole question is a rather a strange one. Uh, Dante Alighieri, Thomist poet, question mark, most of you are probably wondering, well, isn't that rather obvious? I mean, he's an Italian of a certain age in a certain period of the church. And wouldn't we almost expect him to be familiar with the works of St. Thomas Aquinas to be, uh, to be immersed, as it were, in that kind of worldview? As a matter of fact, this has led to some people to say in Catholic circles that Dante's Divine Comedy is nothing less 
than a summa in verse. So this is a, a kind of common, uh, common thought that Dante is, is so immersed in Thomism, is so immersed in Thomistic thought that his divine comedy is, is nothing more than really an expression of that thought. Well, you might imagine that there are others who would not particularly agree with that thesis. And this has been the concern, I think, of much of 20th century scholarship on the, uh, the Divine Comedy. Um, there's been a reaction against this kind of characterization of Dante as uh, a card-carrying Thomist. Not only a card-carrying Thomist, but an earnest disciple who who didn't really, didn't really produce much of his own thought. He was, he was merely putting into fictional form uh, the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. And we find this kind of reaction against the characterization, this characterization of Dante from none other than the Thomist Etienne Gilson, uh, this famous French historian of philosophy who helped to revive interest in St. Thomas Aquinas just shortly after the publication of Leo XIII's uh, advocacy for Thomism, uh, Gilson distinguished himself by uh, talking about uh, Thomist philosophy as being Christian philosophy. And uh, while we might think that that would seem to accord very well with this notion of, of Dante as uh, a Thomist, an eloquent Thomist, Chilson, who fancied himself something of a Dante scholar and uh, published a book called Dante the Philosopher um, in, the, uh, in the 1930s, um, and an English translation was, was produced in the 1940s, um, that he, he seems to find very little agreement between Dante and the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. The, uh, this, this sense of, of the disjunction between the thought of Aquinas and the thought of Dante is also shared by the eminent Italian philosopher and Dante scholar Bruno Nardi, who has, pub has published extensively in Italian, and that's one of the reasons why we in the English-speaking world don't really don't really know a whole lot of his his work, but he was a kind of a, a collaborator, a contemporary of Gilson. And he also spoke about the disjunction, the, the, the very clear difference between Dante's work and St. Thomas Aquinas's. The, these two often speak in their works about freeing Dante from Thomism, from the grasp of Thomism. And we might be able to understand that in reaction to an earlier uh, 19th century, early 20th century thought that the com comedy is nothing less than the summa in verse. They want to, wanted to uh, free Dante's thought from the, the prison of Thomism. It's almost as though 
Thomism is conceived as a kind of a kind of cult that restricts the thought of the poet Dante, and they they thought that the best way to to illustrate the independence of Dante as a poet as a thinker was to show and demonstrate those places in Dante's works that were extremely different, distinct from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. The, uh, much, of this, much of this controversy, and uh, I'm going to be a, a, suggest a little kind of simplistic resolution to this controversy, arises from disputes regarding to what degree or extent Dante in, was influenced by St. Thomas and what our own modern prejudices are regarding genius, the notion of genius or excellence in terms of, of artistic endeavor or intellectual endeavor and our, uh, our prejudice regarding originality. So I'd like to just refer to yet another work. You'll see that there's a theme developing here. I, I very rarely uh, choose some original thought. Um, I'd like to, to uh, bring to your mind uh, a work written by a scholar from uh, State University of New York, Mary Carruthers, who wrote a very interesting book called The Book of Memory. In that book, she... Uh, which she wrote in uh, the late 80s, uh, got published in the, in the mid-90s. Um, in that book, she's interested in, interested in tying together the um, Ciceronian theories of memory and mem tying memory and location together. If uh, you've seen the, the more recent uh, Sherlock Holmes episodes with on television from the BBC with Benedict Cumberbatch playing a kind of modern Sherlock Holmes, you'll be familiar with the notion of a memory palace, that someone in order to memorize a series of, of data efficiently and quickly will imagine a place and put things uh, mentally in different locations in order to try to remember them quickly. And um, Mary Carruthers uh, really brought this to the greater attention of medievalists everywhere and did a, a great service in doing so. But in her introduction, she introduces the role of memory and compares the understanding of genius in the Middle Ages, how, what people thought a genius was in the Middle Ages, and what, what qualities someone with genius had she compares that with uh, the modern notion, what we might call the 20th century notion of genius. And what she found is in comparing the description of St. Thomas Aquinas, hard at work from the record of his scribe Reginald, she, she saw that in the Middle Ages, the, the prized aspect of genius was memory. It was not originality. It was rather that the capacity that someone had to, to be able to bring together all of this tremendous knowledge from the classical period, 
all the way through to the, the present day. And so uh, she sees this certainly in Reginald's description of St. Thomas as he dictates to five different scribes at the same time, drawing out of his memory the, the riches, the treasure of uh, all of the, the patristic inheritance as well as Aristotle and uh, the, the pagan philosophers. And so she contrasts this with a description of Einstein by one of his students. And of course, the emphasis, although they do share a certain amount, the, the quickness of their thought, the, the wide-ranging aspect of their thought, the comparison is very intriguing because the description of Einstein focuses in much more on originality, how new this thought was, how, how radically different, what a great disjunction it was from the past. And so I think um, this, is, this is all really just to say that we, looking back at someone like Dante and looking at his sources, may be tempted to think that if we attribute too much of his writing to a particular source, St. Thomas Aquinas perhaps, then we are doing him a disservice because we are devaluing his genius, as it were. Now, I, I think there's, there might be something to it in a certain sense, something to the, the, the kind of uh, reaction over against this notion that, that Dante in the 14th, early 14th century is some kind of, of uh, person absolutely captivated by all of St. Thomas's philosophical and theological works. Um, we know that Dante did study uh, under Dominican masters in Florence from his Convivio, which is a, a record of his own learning. He had intended on producing 14 volumes of commentary on 14 metaphorical poems relating what he had learned in Florence from both the, the Dominican school at Santa Maria Novella and also the Franciscan school. And he, uh, he tries to bring this together in his, in his convivio. We know that uh, he did have some acquaintance with the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. This brings us to the other thing that we have to bear in mind is, is Thomas's influence. Is this a kind of absolute influence? Is it, a, is, is it a, an all-encompassing influence? Or what kind of influence is it? We need to ask, what does it mean then to be a Thomist? When we say that Dante is a, a Thomist, what do we mean? So I want to proceed by means of an old medieval maxim. Never deny, rarely affirm, always distinguish. So we're going to try to distinguish exactly what it means to, to be a Thomist in the sense in which we might say that Dante is or maybe is not a Thomist.
In order to do that, I think we have to look at those touchstones, those places where Dante's work, and not just the, the Divine Comedy, but also some of his other work, um, touches on the, the work of St. Thomas. And I think we can point to certainly his, uh, his convivio, which is, is um, his prose commentary on his own poetry in Italian, written in from 1304 to 1307, while he's in the early stages of his exile. He's written these, these metaphorical poems, and then he writes his own co prose commentary to accompany the poetry in order to share the, the, the learning that he had received while he was in Florence, in both these, these schools that I mentioned earlier. And in there, he even mentions in his fourth book, uh, it was supposed to be the fourth out of 14. He had conceived 14 different poems and, and uh, 14 different books. He only finished four of them. Um, but he explains how he borrows from Aquinas's Summa Contra Gentiles for the opening verse of the last third of his, his fourth canzone, this, this fourth poem. And uh, in we might... Uh, likewise, points to uh, such things as his uh, his uh, purgatorio. In the purgatorio, he mentions quite clearly the the seven deadly sins, and um, as he ascends Mount Purgatory with uh, his guide Virgil, they gradually go through the seven deadly sins. But they also go through the seven op opposing virtues, those seven virtues that, that uh, assist and help someone to, to avoid the seven deadly sins. In this sense, his conception of the moral life shows deep, a deep likeness to the, the moral thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, in the Summa, in the Secunda uh, Pars, in the, the second part of the second part, St. Thomas very carefully delineates the different virtues and then they, the different vices opposed to those virtues. In a certain sense, it's a, it's a mirror image of what Dante provides in terms of, of in terms of, um, uh, in terms of, of the role of the virtues. St. Thomas Aquinas is always talking about the end, the end of our action, the end of the human person. And when he talks about that end, he is focusing mainly on beatitude. Um, what makes us happy? Because happiness is the one thing that all persons look for. That's, that's one thing that, that, that everyone desires the most. And the way to that happiness is, of course, the true and the good. And that path is through these, uh, these habits, habits of the soul called virtues. He only comes to the vices in order to contradistinguish um, what what the virtue helps to answer in us. 
and talks about the vices that are opposed to these virtues only at the end of each section on each of the theological and cardinal virtues. So theological virtues, faith, hope, love, and then the cardinal virtues, uh, uh, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. Okay. And we see these, these very same, uh, a, a very similar kind of conception in Dante, but from the other way around. Each of these souls is being, uh, is, is uh, paying out, you might say, their punishment in purgatory on each of the different levels or stages of Mount Purgatory. And so the focus is rather on on what is the, the sin, the cardinal sin, pride, envy, avarice, uh, wrath, and so forth. And then in the midst of that, what is the punishment, which reflects something of the, um, something of the, the, uh, the corresponding virtue. So for example, those who are in, uh, who are suffering from, from pride, sins of pride, they have extreme kind of weights attached to their back so that they have to look down. They can't look up. Dante is particularly intrigued by this in uh, at least the, the poet Dante in the Divine Comedy is particularly intrigued and moved by this because he realizes that this is his ruling sin. This is, this is the sin that most affects him. And he gazes upon the, those who are, are he's, he's particularly interested and mourns uh, this kind of punishment because he realizes he himself is going to have to undergo this or, and, and uh, worries about it. All of these people are being punished with this, this block so that they don't look up because they're meant to become humble. Humility is the, is the guiding virtue here, the, the, the virtue that, that helps, helps someone out of the notion of, of pride. And so looking down, that looking down, means that they can't straighten themselves up. They can't, um, they can't have self-regard, as it were. And looking down, they see a whole series of demonstrative moments in the life, first of all, of Our Lady and her humility in um, agreeing to the, the proposal made by the angel Gabriel and uh, other examples, pronounced examples of, of humility from different historical sources. So they're also meant to look at the virtue that they desire, that virtue that will help to remediate their sin, and help them once more to stand and move forward on their journey to heaven. So there's a great deal in the Purgatorio that accords very well with, um, with St. Thomas Aquinas's thought, 
But there are, of course, uh, differences in presentation, uh, different ways in which both of these authors look at the same reality. Um, in a similar sort of way, we might look at probably the, it's unfortunate that the, the most read canzone of, of uh, Dante is the Inferno. Everybody, I don't know uh, about you, but many, many students have told me, oh yeah, we read that in high school. Might give, you know, the Inferno to seniors in high school or uh, first year students in literature courses. They read the Inferno and then they never get the after story. And, and which is, is so um, ironic since the reason why Dante writes this whole thing is to uh, certainly comment on the uh, politics and the, um, the vices and the evils of his own day, but also to encourage Christians to move towards God, to move towards the heavens, to move uh, to union with God. In the Inferno, Dante does present many of the, um, of the principal vices, the, the deadly sins. So uh, we encounter from the very beginning of the Inferno, after he enters from, um, from limbo, and more about that in just a moment, lust, gluttony, avarice, wrath. So these, these four vices are found there. And then sloth is also something that, which is kind of included in the level of, of wrath as well. So you could say that we have five of the principal vices, but he leaves out envy and pride. Um, so we might be able to, to agree with some of the critics of, uh, of Dante's Thomism saying that he seems to leave out these, these important details of the deadly sins from a list that, that St. Thomas would most assuredly follow. However, as we look at uh, the Inferno, we do see a number of distinctions from St. Thomas's general way or ordering of things. Saint, uh, I shouldn't say that, Saint uh, Dante, not Saint Dante, but Dante. Dante uh, starts off, you might recall, those of you who have read The Inferno, starts off with the incontinent, the people who have difficulty with, with uh, really a kind of, of, of discipline, uh, the lustful, the gluttonous, the hoarders and spendthrifts, the wrathful, um, so we have avarice in there as well. Um, but then he moves on to the violent. So he talks about the heretics, the violent against the their neighbors, the violent against themselves, the violent against God and nature and art. And then um, moves further down to the fraudulent and down to finally the traitors at the very pit of the inferno. Um, 
This is very, a very interesting and unique sort of presentation. Um, and uh, certainly we wouldn't be able to find this uh, uh, outlined in any of St. Thomas's work in this manner, in this way. Dante seems to think that the more spiritual, more spiritually perverse the sin, the more serious it is. Uh, it's one thing to distort uh, one's oneself through incontinence, uh, to distort someone else through violence, one's neighbor, and then to, uh, to distort one's own soul through fraudulence, and in the end, to betray those who are closest to one. So uh, starting with traitors to their kindred and Cana, named for, of course, Cain, slain by Abel, traitors to their country um, in Antonora and Ptolemaea, traitors to their, to their guests. And in Eudeca, which is named, of course, for Judas, who is the principal sinner in the, in the mouth, the, the main maw of, of uh, Lucifer, who's uh, chowing down on him for all eternity. Um, they, these are traitors to their lords who are upending the, the entire civil order. And this is, uh, and in this case, uh, they're upending the entire order of salvation. Uh, Judas is seen as the, as the one who, uh, who rebels most significantly against God himself. So we can see in here the touch of St. Thomas and many aspects of this. Uh, I think the Inferno shows far less influence than the Purgatorio does. In the Paradiso, of course, we have St. Thomas make an actual appearance. So uh, here's St. Thomas speaking all about um, introducing uh, Dante to the, the sphere of the sun, the place where all of those who are truly exemplify wisdom are. And in this particular place, uh, St. Thomas is the one who greets Dante, who speaks to him and speaks to him first extolling the virtues of St. Francis of Assisi, strangely enough. Uh, this is deriving from a custom that the Dominicans and the Franciscans have, that, uh, which is, goes all the way back uh, to the earliest years of, of both orders, uh, that a Dominican would usually preach the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi in the Franciscan uh, uh, Priory. And a Franciscan would preach the Feast of St. Dominic in a Dominican Priory. Uh, it's a tradition that has somewhat fallen out of use, but uh, there are still occasions. Uh, there was an occasion a few years ago when we were able to have a, a Franciscan come and preach to us. So. This, of course, also introduces the, the figure of St. Bonaventure of Bagno Reggio. I don't know if, if many of you have heard about him. He was a contemporary of St. Thomas Aquinas, likewise a genius, um, less influenced by um, the works of Aristotle than St. Thomas would be. 
and much more on a kind of an Augustinian side of, of, of influence himself. Um, and he, of course, extols St. Dominic. But the, the principal voice that we hear throughout much of this, and as a matter of fact, uh, St. Thomas speaks in no less than, than um, five cantos of the Paradiso, means that the only person that speaks more than St. Thomas in the Paradiso is our Blessed Lady. Okay, so it's, uh, dare I say this shows some homage to, to St. Thomas and uh, to his works and to, his, uh, to his, his genius, as it were. So in all three of these, we can see certainly the touch of St. Thomas. And before I go too much further, I should say it would be um, setting up something of a straw man to say that, that Dante scholars would not recognize any influence of St. Thomas Aquinas in the, uh, the comedy or in uh, Dante's other works. What we're really arguing about here is the extent to which Dante is, uh, is influenced. One aspect of, uh, there, there have been a, a number of debates between uh, Gilson, uh, or there were a number of debates between Gilson and uh, uh, a Dominican by the name of Mandonet, uh, Pierre Mendonet, who wrote his own work on Dante as well, uh, a Thomist of the strict observance, who who declared that that uh, Dante was was very much influenced by Saint Thomas Aquinas, that his works, his his entire philosophical training was Thomist. I'm not quite so sure that we can we can say. We can, we can say that um, for some of the reasons that I've, I've mentioned here. But we might also look at um, individuals like Gilson, uh, Nardi, and, um, and, uh, uh, and a, a, an English Dominican um, whose last name is Foster. I'm trying to figure trying to remember his first name, um, all of whom were very eager to show the disjunction between Dante's thought and, uh, and especially the, the comedy. Um, the, the places where they would say, the, the, the premier places where they would say the, 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 the thought of Dante and the thought of Aquinas disagree, and uh, George Corbett in his, his article, the article that I mentioned at the very beginning, um, goes into uh, at least eight of these areas. Um, the natural desire for the beatific vision, the notion that, that a human person has a natural desire for God um, and what that means. Uh, Dante's imperialist political theory. Dante wrote a book called The Monarchia, which is a, a Latin defense of the role of the Holy Roman Emperor 
conceived in Dante's view as a universal emperor. And Dante here suggests that, that just as there are two ends to the human person, a natural end and a supernatural end, so there should be two rulers, one in the strictly natural things and one in the strictly supernatural things. He's uh, something of a dualist when it comes to his political theory. And of course, it was for this reason that uh, Dante's Monarchia won the uh, peculiar distinction of being on the Index of Forbidden Books after the Council of Trent. So um, while we can say most definitely that Dante would not, that uh, that St. Thomas would not agree with Dante in this respect, St. Thomas nevertheless would talk about the two ends of the human person, uh, a natural and a supernatural end. Um, the relationship between philosophy and theology. Dante uh, distinguishes and uh, talks about um, man considered from a purely philosophical point of view and man considered from a purely theological point of view. And then the theological point of view, of course, takes up some of the philosophy as philosophy is the handmaid to, to theology. In the very beginning of St. Thomas's uh, Summa, in the very first question, he talks about the relationship of philosophy and theology saying that philosophy would provide some of the uh, elements, the principles that were necessary in theology. However, St. Thomas quite clearly thinks of these two areas as sciences in their own right, as when I say a science, a body of knowledge is what the medieval conception of a science is. All right. So, uh, we're not talking about the, the kind of number envy that, that uh, the various sciences have today. This is just bodies of knowledge, generally speaking. And each would have their own uh, manner and mode of, of working, coming to harmonious conclusions. They would not, um, they would not contradict one another. And this is what a lot of the debates about faith and reason are about these days, uh, talking about faith and reason is coming together. For St. Thomas, philosophy starts from the things experienced here, naturally speaking, and moves towards uh, a reasoning about the creator of those things. And uh, theology starts from the data of revelation and then proceeds to talk about the whole of the, the created order in light as it relates to God. Um, the relationship between nature and grace, the order of, of nature and the order of grace. This is another area which uh, Jilson and Nardi uh, highlight as something that, that um, where Dante and St. Thomas disagree. Um, pagan virtue and, and pagan salvation 
you might have you might remember in the inferno there's that area in limbo where there are plenty of pagans sort of righteous pagans who are populated populating the area there um, for Aquinas, limbo is a, a theological supposit to try to explain what happens um, when uh, a, a baby dies without baptism. Uh, it's a supposit to also describe, you know, what happens to to someone who's who is uh, righteous but who dies without having accepted the faith and. Um, they would, uh, Jilson and Nardi would see a, a, an extreme kind of distinction between the, the limbo that St. Thomas describes and the limbo that Dante uh, shows in, in the Commedia. Because Dante has all of these, all of these pagans here. <laughs> What's going on here? They're, surely they can't be that many, you know, just pagans. Um, we have to also think about Dante as a as an artist that is using his artistic imagination, and he does not intend this to be a literal kind of description of the underworld, but rather a figural one that that should lead us to consider uh, what the what the figures represent. I won't go on with, uh, with too many more of these uh, these ideas, but I would encourage you, uh, uh, when this this article comes out, to have a have a quick look at it. Um, it's a it's a fascinating description of um, the 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 uh, opposition between two different schools of of Thomism and how that colors the way in which they understand the comedy. How uh, Jilson and Nardi have a tendency to uh, presuppose their own ideas of what St. Thomas said, and so judge Dante's Thomism on the basis of that. Just as Mandonet has kind of overstated his case, so Jilson uh, and Nardi have likewise, in some ways, uh, used their own prejudices to influence the way in which they understand the way that Dante used Thomas. So let me go back to our original question. Is Dante a Thomist? Well, I think if you mean an artist who is influenced by St. Thomas Aquinas's thought and has some conception of, of some basic principles, uh, principles of, of physics, of logic, of metaphysics in terms of creation, um, of the salvific order, of the moral life, then I think we have to say, yes, he's influenced by these things. Does this make him any less an original thinker or a, or a, a genius in terms of his poetry? No, I don't think so. I think he is his own thinker. Um, I don't think he has to embrace every last, uh, you know, uh, word of Saint Thomas's thought, and that, by the way, is not what uh, Father Mandonet 
thought either. Uh, just that little bit I told you about the monarchia and the, the, the fact that St. Thomas definitely would not agree with, with Dante about that should, should prove the point. And Father Mandonet was quite aware of that. So I think we can say in a qualified way that Dante was a Thomist poet, but he was not a slave to St. Thomas. <laughs> he was an original poet. And like all artists, he used existing material and brought out of, of that existing material something, um, something beautiful, something true, and something good. All right, I'll be more than happy to entertain um, questions, counter-arguments, um, controversies. <laughs> It's a good way to approach uh, the comedy for the, for the first time. For the first time? Would you recommend like in the commentaries and read all things about it? Probably the edition I would recommend is a first read through the excellence. Um, he's, uh, now here's, uh, here's the, the, the uh, full disclosure. I'm a friend of uh, Professor Esselin. So, um, so I have to confess that before I, I go further. But I can honestly say that having uh, having read his his translation and seen the the notes, which are um, they're they're uh, complete, but they're not burdensome in the sense that you're you're constantly looking back and forth. Um, they're they're helpful in their simplicity. And they don't obstruct your, your, your reading experience. They, they contribute to your understanding of it. Because uh, Dante does mention a lot of, of uh, historical figures from, from the Florence of his day. There are many of them, most of them, I would say, that we can actually identify, which makes the, it, it easier for us to understand why he places some, place, some people in certain places of hell or purgatory or paradiso, but it can also be uh, rather irritating as a first-time reader coming across so many names and then thinking, how am I ever going to get through this? Because, you know, here's another name of another person I don't know, and I have no idea what's going on here. So what I would counsel is that you would get something like uh, Professor Esselin's edition. And... I would say just uh, read it through without, you know, with maybe with just reference to the notes that are at the bottom of the page for the first time, and to to just resolve to 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 read through it. I, I wouldn't worry too much about the names, about the the uh, the historical detail that's in there, because you can get really bogged down by that. I would just try to read it through. Read it as a, as a poem. Read it all the way through. And it's only then, once you're, once you're hooked, <laughs> it's only then that, um, that you'll have the stamina, I think, to once your interest is, is peaked, to really get into, okay, well, what's he really talking about here? Uh, I want to go into some, some deeper detail. It's like um, the layers of an onion. I mean, 
you draw back one layer of the onion, there's another layer there. And it's, it's so finely woven together, to use a mixed metaphor now, to moving from onions to, to you know, uh, a rich Persian rug. You draw one strand and then the rest of it seems to, you know, begins to follow. And there's, there's more and more uh, to explore in there. And that's, at that point, I think you might want um, an addition maybe with a, well, uh, Aslan's edition also has a facing page Italian, um, Italian text. So if you know any, any Latin or any of the Romance languages, um, it's, you, you can pick out individual words and uh, that might also help in terms of your, your understanding comprehension. This edition, the, the edition that I prefer to use is Charles Singleton's edition. Now, um, it's a prose translation, which might not be as, as beautiful as a, a nice verse translation like uh, Professor Esselin's or uh, many of the other, uh, other translations. Um, that, but what I like about it is that because it is a prose translation, he can attempt to capture uh, more of the meaning without worrying about uh, sentence structure um, or meter or rhyme or trying to, to emulate Dante's style. Um, if you want an, a good example of that, there's, a, there's an edition which I think is still published by Penguin Books called uh, by, by Dorothy Sayers, in which she attempts to, to emulate uh, the terza rima of, of the comedy, which is a, a very intricate rhyme scheme, A, B, A, B, C, B, D, you know, and so forth. Um, these tercets. Um, and uh, that works very well for Italian because almost every second word in Italian rhymes. <laughs> but, but when it comes to English, Good luck. <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, Dorothy Sayers does an, an admirable job, uh, but it by by the very fact that she's kind of attempting to do this, it, it makes her text a little more distant from Dante's uh, in some respects. So, um, yeah, that's. I would try just try to sit down and just try to appreciate the literal meaning of it the first first time through and just try to read right through it and please 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 don't just stop at the inferno okay if you, if you can try to fight through the inferno to get to the purgatorio which is my favorite part and uh, and even get to the, the paradiso and uh, which is probably the least read of the three any other questions? So, um, I have a question regarding uh, his work, Monarchia, and how it relates to like the Inferno. So I noticed, I can't speak for Paradiso, I haven't read that yet, but at least in uh, Inferno and Purgatorio, uh, Dante is in some ways quite critical of the church in the papacy of his time. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that his he already had some philosophical beliefs which made him more critical or was his philosophy influenced by what he was seeing in his day? 
uh, his philosophy was influenced by what he saw. His experience was, I think, a major factor. Um, he belonged to the Guelph party, which was originally the pro-papal party. I mean, the, uh, the Ghibellines were the, were the ones who supported the emperor and were all, you know, uh, pro-emperor. And the, the Guelphs were the ones who were supposed to be espousing the, the, the papal role, right? That they, they wanted the, uh, the papacy to, to rule the Italian peninsula. Um, by Dante's day, the, the Guelphs had won the ascendancy in, uh, by, the, by the end of the, the 13th century. And the beginning of the four, and so the, the Ghibellines had all been exiled out of Florence um, or made their peace with the Guelphs. The Guelph party, however, divided into two parts, the white Guelphs and the black Guelphs. And um, the distinction was this, uh, uh, Dante's party was the white Guelphs and they did not like the Pope's uh, uh, interfering in internal politics in Florence. They um, reacted very strongly against Boniface VIII. You might remember Dante, uh, uh, you know, reserves a special space for him in hell. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, the, and so his party actually took up the the cudgels of the Ghibellines in a certain sense, they were, they became anti-papal and they saw the, the, uh, the temporal power as uh, being the power that should be the administrative power, um, should be the, the ruling power. And so they were pro-imperialist and the Black Welfs were pro-papal. Now, uh, does this mean that we're meant to see Dante as, um, uh, you know, as, as some sort of bad Catholic? Well, no, he wouldn't have seen himself that way. He would see himself definitely as the son of the church. And um, he would have seen the, um, himself as distinguishing between the two powers, the, the power of the keys and the, the power of the, uh, of the monarch, the power of the, the orb, you might say, the, the orb and scepter. And in, um, in 1310, he sees the rise of the, uh, the current uh, Holy Roman Emperor, and he, he begins to think that there might be a possibility of the unification of the whole Italy, which would be... Uh, in his mind, a great thing because it would finally uh, quell all of these different warring factions that for centuries had torn uh, the peninsula apart. And so he writes the De Monarchia to make an argument for a kind of one overall king uh, to, to rule the, um, the whole of the peninsula. And that's, that's so it's his experience, his bitter experience in, in Florence uh, after he's, one of the reasons he's, he's so anti-Boniface VIII is because um, Charles of Valois, 
was brought in by Boniface VIII to mediate between the two uh, contesting factions in Florence. Of course, Charles invited, you know, 10,000 of his favorite good soldiers to come along with him. And uh, they eventually, eventually took, um, uh, took Florence and they put in place a, a kind of, you might, we might call it today, a kind of puppet government of black wealths who then uh, seized all of Dante's goods and said that, um, said that, that unless Dante paid fines uh, at the court, he would be exiled. Of course, Dante was already called to Rome on a delegation from the White Guelphs to the papal court. Boniface VIII had told Dante to stay in Rome. He sent all of the other delegation back to Florence, most of whom were, you know, either wound up dead or exiled. And, um, and so Boniface got control of Florence one way or the other. He was a very grasping pope, which is why he's, he's not seen. <laughs> anyway, now do we have to surrender this room to somebody? Or? No, we, we don't have anything. Okay. There's no one after this. I think our lot is killed. Okay. So anyway, that gives you some idea of what the kind of political scene is. And those sort of prophecies, correct? The spirit is the the problem here with the I mean with the uh, uh, with the, the comedy is that what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 The comedy is actually written in 1315. Yeah. But he sets it in the year 1300. So he's conveniently 35 years old, halfway through his life, according to the Psalm, a uh, um, uh, human person lives, lives 70 years or 80 years for those who are strong, right? Half of that, of course, 35, convenient, 35 years old. And this, he's ostensibly making his journey through uh, uh, hell, purgatory, and heaven uh, before he's exiled. So there, the prophecies that are in here are really prophecies after the fact. So, um, yeah. What's the difference between the time? Can you explain his uh, exile? His, uh, his uh, political uh, exile? Oh, yeah, his political exile. He, uh, he was a very influential white Guelph. He was, he was, he, he uh, formed part of the, the governance of the commune. And in that, in, um, in Northern Italy at this period, there are a number of, of communes that were ostensibly ruled by uh, basically old people who had any kind of property. So they formed a, a self-governing unit called the commune and um, and uh, basically it was it's a quasi democratic uh, way of, of governing the, the the city and so Italy was at least northern Italy was full of these these kind of city states almost 
And uh, but unfortunately, the commune system was starting to break down just in Dante's day, so that they um, the person who who was in the I forget the, the technical name for the the head of this council for the for the city uh, something akin to a mayor right? um, suddenly becomes the potista who is the potista was the person who who was uh, hired by the city to um, uh, to uh, impose civic order. So he's in charge of the constabulary, the, you know, basically a small militia. And uh, suddenly it becomes, they become uh, mainly the fiefdoms of, of what later become the, the noble families in Northern Italy. Um, Florence goes through some of that with the Medici. And the Medici's come, uh, basically they begin their long reign in, in Florence just shortly after Dante's time. So, yeah, did that answer your question? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he was very, it was uh, definitely a political exile if he had ever showed his face again in, um, in Florence, he would have been killed. Uh, his wife, interestingly enough, um, took his writings when he was exiled, took all of his writings because she knew that the opponents would seize them. She took them and placed them in the safe care of the Dominican friars at, uh, um, uh, at the, uh, the church of uh, Santa Maria Novella. So uh, the friars had charge of them for a while. Well, obviously the, the idea or concept of limbo has sort of fallen out of favor as, mm -hmm. as time has gone on in the church, but um, could you explain a little more um, or, or, or remind me if uh, St. Thomas sees a place for any of the kind of, any of the pagans, the, the virtuous pagans, I guess you might call them, that uh, Dante does there? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of... Um... I'm not really well versed on on Thomas's Thomas's teaching on limbo. From what I understand, he proposes it mainly as um, a way of resolving the problem of, uh, you know, uh, the question of what kind of a god would condemn uh, infants, um, would condemn, you know, or uh, the the primacy of baptism as the sacrament of salvation and um, uh, and and also trying to take into account God's mercy. So how can you say that that uh, somebody who wasn't baptized is able to enter into the kingdom of heaven uh, if baptism is considered necessary uh, for uh, for saving grace? Now, in this day and age, we say that, well, you know, God, uh, we, we don't know. You know, uh, we've thrown the question back to, uh, to uh, the, uh, the state of the question uh, ante uh, limbo. And we say we don't really know. We do know that, that um, 
we do know that that God can work outside the sacraments, that the sacraments are obligatory for us, but you know, God does work outside the sacraments. And but that we shouldn't <laughs> presume upon uh, God's working in this extraordinary way. Um, St. Thomas would solve the problem by saying that the, the infants are perfectly naturally happy. Again, this notion of natural happiness and supernatural happiness. And so this, these dual ends, they enjoy perfect natural happiness, but do not enjoy the vision of God. And that, of course, creates conundrums of its, of its own kind. Um, uh, so, um, for Dante to place loads of, you know, we, he does mention the the infants, but really places the emphasis on these these um, righteous pagans, uh, the philosophers and the the uh, the great heroes of of the you know of the classics, and so. Um, those who want to say that he's he's not a, a Thomist will point out this disjunction, this emphasis on these these kind of um, noble uh, noble pagans. But that's kind of to mistake what what Dante's artistic purpose is here. So I have a question about uh, connected to that. So. Um, how do Catholics view the harrowing of Hades? So when Jesus came and preached the gospel, uh, was it that only the righteous of the Old Testament were saved or that anybody righteous was saved? Um, the, I, mean, I think the, the uh, Catholic teaching would be that uh, any, of the, any of the righteous are saved according to God's understanding of who is righteous. Um, the, the Catholic understanding is that he did, he descended to the, um, to the, the, uh, the hell of those, those who were, um, those, uh, the, the hell of the, of the righteous who were, um, but he does not descend as, um, some theologians have have speculated that he does not descend right to the uttermost pit of hell, to the to the the, the deepest depths. And you'll find somebody like Pope Balthazar will right. will make that point. Um, so uh, Saint Thomas Saint Thomas would say that that limbo is also the place where the where the uh, biblical um, righteous are. And um, and this also accords with the, the Eastern teaching about uh, about the, the breaking of uh, of the gates of hell and drawing out rather impressive Byzantine icon of the rather muscular Christ drawing the, uh, Adam and Eve out of out of hell and the, the gates of hell are all broken underneath their feet anyway.
Right. Um, so I have a question that a friend of mine wanted me to ask. Okay. It's um, yeah, she uh, she goes to a Franciscan University of Steubenville, mm -hmm. and um, in Dante's Divine Comedy, he he places so many well-known people and also people from his own life. To some people in the modern day, that 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 strikes. Well, it strikes them as being odd, and some uh -huh. people say this is just fan fiction, uh -huh. which is a, it's a, it's a, I don't know how to explain. It's like a genre of fiction where you take famous or real or fictional individuals and like insert yourself in in there. So, mm -hmm. um, why does Dante do this? Um, well, first of all, he's he's a creature of his own. Of his own day, um, he also desires to to be able to talk about these these um, within his his fictionalized version of of hell and purgatory and heaven to be able to to talk more proximately about individuals that people would know, so that he could better exemplify uh, some of these vices mm -hmm. and talk about about concrete examples that people had actually seen and heard. He's also a fallen human being. And he is, uh, he makes no bones about that. I mean, he talks about his own pride. Um, in going through all of the, you remember at the very, very entrance of Mount Purgatory, when he comes to the gate there, the, the angel inscribes, you know, seven, letter P's on his forehead to uh, mean, you know, peccatum, 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 sin, right? The seven deadly sins. And as he goes up Mount Purgatory, uh, an angel wipes away each one of those. So he, in a sense, is making his own mini purgatory, as it were. He's being healed as he goes up the mountain. So he makes no bones about himself being a sinner and also his own kind of heady ideas about, about who merits places in hell and, and where, they, where they should be. And uh, uh, I think the, the uh, proximate artistic reason though is that he desires to, to provide very real examples um, I think all of us are can can think very abstractly about you know what it might be like in in hell or in purgatory or in heaven, but when you suddenly have somebody uh, writhing in a in a hole with his feet sticking up and flames emitting from the from the soles of his feet, and then he introduces himself. Well, that's you know, uh, that makes that makes hell that much more proximate, right? Or it it makes us think. I I knew I knew him. <laughs> hey, this is uh, this guy. <laughs> it also is a is a political as well as a philosophical a political commentary on the politics of his own day. He even places some of his allies and different places of, of hell.
as well as in. It's not just a matter of him placing people that he likes, or just people that he likes in, in heaven. Uh, he has seizure of Brabant. He places in the, the, the sphere of wisdom of the sun. And uh, a lot of people, this is, this is another, seizure of Brabant was an Averroist. So he would ascribe to the, the, the notion of two different bodies of truth. You know, the truth of reason, the truth of, re of revelation. And, you know, the two are two distinct bodies. They're not harmoniously put together. Um, and he, he was, uh, as a matter of fact, in one place, I believe St. Thomas says something rather uncharitable about him, which is uncharacteristic of St. Thomas. But um, uh, here he is in Dante. Why is he there? Well, he's there because he's the only uh, philosopher who's a pure philosopher that Dante could think of to put in this sphere of wisdom to show that, that it wasn't just theologians who were there. It was also uh, philosophic wisdom. It's also part of it. That may be weak reasoning, but anyway. Um, yeah. So does that help? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll I'll uh, I'll tell that that to him. Okay. Very good. Well. What do you think of Giuseppe's uh, illustrations of the uh, of the Divine Comedy? When I was in an undergraduate, before I had actually read The Divine Comedy, I went to a bookstore and they were selling a copy of uh, a very old, I think it was the, it might have been uh, Longfellow's translation of the, the Divine Comedy with Doré's uh, illustrations, the engravings that he made. And uh, it's, they really are spectacular. If you want, you know, uh, some really great art to go along with the, the comedy. Uh, that's a, one way to go. Um, and uh, they, uh, they're, they're uh, beautifully executed. And um, they're, I, I remember having that, holding onto that book for, for many, many years until I finally, in a, a fit of poverty, I got rid of it. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. I've been always like drawn to them. Uh, yeah. I, I've seen artists myself. Um, yeah, they're just so beautiful. And like, the way he plays with the darks and the pulls the whites out, it's just like, incredible. And um, uh, something which I didn't really realize before uh, is that Dante's work really provided great inspiration to many different, uh, many different Italian artists, uh, right from you know, from the beginnings of the of the Renaissance in the 14th century, uh, all the way forward. So there are a number of different representations of, of different aspects of the of the Divine Comedy. Um, so yeah, yeah, um, that's one of the things I I picked up just this last spring semester when I was uh, helping out with the the uh, semester abroad program, which I would highly recommend to 
uh, any of you, if you're if you're looking for a, a year abroad, or not a year, but a semester abroad for your program, um, uh, it's a it's a great way to, to encounter some of these things. Have you ever read the Longfellow translation? No. No. No, no, I haven't. I mean, you can still buy, there are plenty of copies uh, available on Amazon, but I've, I've, never really, I've never read it. I've never read the Pope translation either. Somebody was, were you mentioning the, the uh, I think Justin was, oh, oh, yeah, Pope. Pope translation. Oh, I was talking about Pope's trans translation of the, of the Odyssey. The Odyssey. Okay. Yeah. 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 Did, did he do a translation of? of I don't think he did. Okay. I don't think he no. did. But I was curious because you mentioned it. Uh, I thought you mentioned it. But uh, yeah, yeah. Which pope? Right. Oh, Alexander. Uh, Alexander the Pope, an English poet. He did. He did English translations of the Odyssey and the Iliad. Yeah, it's um, he's my one of my favorite eighteenth-century poets. <laughs> so he wrote a a work um, which is this monumental work called the Dunciad, which has has meant to to uh, you know showcase the the very worst writers of uh, in England at his own in his own day. And he especially poked fun at the poet laureate, um, so making him the the hero of of uh, you know established in the kingdom of Bathos, which is uh, you know the worst of the worst. So anyway, yeah, he's he had, he was a bit of a sharp character. <laughs> All right.